Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Recording in progress. <laughs> oh my god, there's two more. You enjoyed the last one so much, I figured I had to whip out another one. This is a Snoopy mummy, for those of you who can't see us. And you can see there's a theme, like it's Halloween-y, but not too scary since I'm a big chicken. <laughs> I love it. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of uh, Between Two Chairs. My name is Fernando Arencibia and with me is, as always, my um, very creative host, co-host, uh, Jennifer Woman. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? Good. How are you? <laughs> Haven't seen you in a while. You were off in Atlanta at C5, which... Sounds like it was amazing. Real quick before we get started, any highlights or quick takeaways you want to? It was phenomenal. It was a great, um, great idea for NAR to partner with CCIM to do the event. It was very well attended. Uh, There was a lot of great energy in the room. As always, the quality of the of the uh, presentations was bar none. You know, some of the best. I will say we, you know, we had two um, really keynote speakers. You know, our, our opening session was with David Robinson, NBA legend, and uh, really an amazing human being. Let's just say that he has a PhD in connecting with hu- other human beings. And then we had uh, FBI uh, negotiator Chris Voss, oh, my hero. I know, I know. Finish out with the closing session, and that was just a tremendously insightful presentation on uh, human behavior and the way that we interact with each other. You know, and then in between, just great data on everything that is happening in the commercial market and the future of every asset class was touched upon in one way or another. So, uh, you know, again, phenomenal. I'm sure we'll do a, a, an episode because it does deserve its own yes, episode. Uh, there were a lot of... We will definitely do its own episode. Uh, but for those of you who are listening, sure. listening, if you want to attend next year it's going to be in hollywood florida at the hard rock hotel and casino so book sometime in september 14th through the through the 17th you know in a a way you know hollywood is close enough to miami to say that we're hosting it we're in miami exactly (laughs) exactly so it'll be a lot of fun since miami really goes pretty much from the florida keys all the way up north to martin and indian river county and a lot of people's minds yeah we can easily claim miami brand just oozes into other territories and other uh, counties throughout uh, south florida so absolutely ooze is definitely a word that is you know goes with halloween and the theme of halloween and scariness so this episode in the last episode um we talked about how fear can stop us from doing deals and moving forward and and 
growing our company, our wealth, or just growing in general. And so I thought one of the things that we had said, especially in relation to public speaking and addressing your fears, is that planning, planning really helped. You know, the very famous line from Franklin D. Roosevelt, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, was actually inspired by Napoleon Hill, the author of Think and Grow Rich. He also wrote another book about fear. So I thought this episode, we could talk about planning and how that can help us move forward, especially now, because you very insightfully stated in the last episode that, you know, fear creates also opportunity. So instead of being held stuck by fear, let's figure out how to include planning. And I guess somebody this all... This idea all started, too, because somebody asked you last week how somebody new to investing would go about identifying investment opportunities and everything else. So do you want to dive into some of the... I I thought we would also go over some... This idea that you texted me about attacking the monster, you know, Mm -hmm. this unknown and and the fear that you have when you're putting a deal together and, you know, especially when you're going through due diligence and, you know, making sure to get it through through the finish line. I I think we'll, we'll go over a few of those things, but I received a question through a colleague of ours about investing. And the question really was, you know, which industries you should focus on, you know, next year in commercial. And I gave him a little rundown of what asset classes we're, we're seeing still holding the lead in, in regards to investors' attention, you know, industrial multifamily. I think that there is a lot of interest in the office sector here in South Florida, just because of how well we're performing compared to the rest of the nation. The following question was, how can someone new to investing like me identify good opportunities in office and retail through you guys? So I, I just gave them a rundown and this was the the rundown first take care of the basics like develop a budget if financing is needed identify the lenders and programs available that can yield good results discuss investment goals uh, to develop an investment strategy i think that that's very very important because it speaks to whether you're going to be a disciplined investor that has a point of view or if you're just going to look at everything that is on the market and go one by one and figure out if if those deals make sense identify uh, for identify asset class and location based on investment strategy and then methodically look at opportunities on and off market to determine if they fit the investment strategy and then you execute when the opportunity matches the investment strategy that's really the bulk of it these these six ideas and what i would say is everything that has worked out in my experience with my clients you evaluate their success based on their failures in other words what which deals really went awry and which deals were great and if you really look at it those that have a very clear point of view have always consistently done well from the get-go right they got in at a good basis they had a good plan that was seven ten years down the line the other ones they still did well because the property appreciated right because you you still own real estate and and you know and and you were able to create the value that you saw fit but it just took them longer to get there because they didn't have that uh, that approach and that perspective and i think that that is an important component of anything to do with having fear for investing is the real fear is not to invest the fear is the fear of the unknown so um what i heard were basically even though there were a total of like six items that you listed was that they mainly fall into the 
three categories, right? Which is clearly identify your goals. That includes, and that has to be very specific, right? That includes developing a business plan, develop your budget, Mm -hmm. identify where you're going to get financing. Right. Then after that would come market knowledge, right? To your point of looking on and off market, try to see what things are going for, what are cap rates that are listed out there. Mm -hmm. And then under that comes property knowledge, right? Because then you're getting even more specific and you're seeing if so you go once you have your goals, you go from there to see if a certain market matches those goals. And then within that market, which properties match those goals. So we already talked about identifying your goals and being specific with the business plan and budgeting. How would you go about if you're a new investor to this person's right. point, if you're a new investor, how would you go about learning a market? I know we've talked a little bit about it with our sure. PR and our conversation with Emily Line, but how would you, you know, get into really exploring yeah. a market? Well, you know, what I find interesting is that there's a, there's two sides to this. One is the technical side of the market itself, the location, and then, of course, the property that you're acquiring. The other side of this, it's more about the psychology of the human mind. How many times have you shown a property to a client and it's the first property they see and you know that this is the best that they're likely to see because the deal just makes so much sense, but they can't see it because it's the first one they've seen. So there's a psychological wall that has to break down in the sense that if I see this, this is the first time I'm seeing it, this is good, but is this the best, right? Can I do better? And and I think that that is an important component. So when I have a client who is kind of setting themselves up to invest, right? Whether they are, you know, liquidating some assets, they know they're going to have some money. The first thing that I want them to do is to start looking at deals as soon as possible to familiarize themselves with the market. Everybody who has a point of view and and they're going to invest, the more deals you see in front of you, the easier it is for you to identify when there's a great deal or or a very good deal that is in front of your hands or even a mediocre deal that you can make better because you have a different perspective on how you're going to use that property. Mm -hmm. So to me, that's a big obstacle when people are starting fresh is that they think, well, if I see a good deal, there might be a better one out there. So there's also that FOMO missing out because I haven't seen enough. And so we have to work around that. and and, And I think that the easiest way to overcome that is just to make sure that you see a lot of stuff. Now, we're in a market where there's not a lot of stuff to see, right? right? The savvy investor, the experienced investor jumps on certain deals right away because they've already seen everything else that's on the market and they understand what the value is there. Agreed. I would also, especially if it's a market you're not familiar with, I would also subscribe to like a local newspaper, you know, here, either the Miami Herald or more specifically something like the Daily Business Journal, which is very, very good at keeping track of deals, the real deal. I know some people love and and use that as their source. So because that also tells you not only what is transacting and who's buying or selling in the area, it also tells you what's coming down the road. So we know, you know, if a university is expanding or a new medical center is coming in or or we're reading about all the new tech companies coming right. to Miami, all of a sudden that's going to give you insights on a market that maybe the deal flow itself isn't going to give you. It's giving you a bigger yeah. picture versus a bird's eye view of, sure. of the market in general. Yeah. So now we've 
done the market. So now let's say we identify a property. And right. and so obviously we all talk about the importance of due diligence. You and I have recently been dealing with several buildings that we're right. trying to lease up where, where there were some holes in the due diligence and we're seeing the yeah. effects of that. So, you know, we're not doing this month, we're not doing our circle time and our kindergarten story just because we've run out of times. But I did want to throw in yeah. a book here. It's called Who's Afraid of the Dark? And it's written by Melanie Joyce. And it's a story about a little fox and mm -hmm. how sounds and shapes and noises in the dark are Listen, scary. If you've been listening to this podcast at all, any of the episodes, I think it's important for me to mention what a proud grandmother Jennifer Woman is, right? And please understand, it's not like she's going home to an empty house with her husband just reading children's books, okay? I want to understand, there are some beautiful human beings in your life that have, I think, reconnected you with all of these stories. I just wanted to put that out there. It, it, it's totally <laughs> true, and I'm reliving those, but full disclosure, uh -huh. I have a huge collection of children's books yeah. and Disney movies that I have. <laughs> on Betamax, right. like from before I had children, right. because I- And I, also plush dolls that, that, that make music. True. Well, th those like those I'll pass on to my granddaughter for sure. Those are because love she loves that. playing with those, and she's like me. She yeah. she likes scary, but not like not really. Well, now back to the show. So this in this book, the narrator is letting the fox know that the dark is full of things that creak and croak and moan, things that jump, things that go bump, and things that grumble and groan. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if that doesn't describe a real estate deal and the importance of due <laughs> diligence, I don't know what yeah. does. For me, it's definitely. Yeah. you know once you get a property under contract really digging in and do the due diligence really you know some people try to do it before they get the property under contract right. which I think is a huge mistake because they either lose it or they talk themselves out of it through right. fear but once they're in it they kind of have once they're under contract they kind of already have skin in the game mm -hmm. and then they can really do a deep dive so what are some of the things during due diligence what are what are right. some of your top things to look at other than do they you know obviously do they yeah. meet your goals and financial um requirements right. and everything else so i find interestingly you know think back to your first commercial deal and when you were putting that together and the contract is you know you don't know what you don't know therefore the list of things to look out for is much, much shorter, right? Because you're focusing on the contract, making sure everybody is in accordance. Oftentimes, the negotiation of the price is not the most asked part of the negotiation. It's all the rest of the terms that are incredibly important for the for the value of the transaction. And so I think that that list with experience grows larger and larger and larger and you start to anticipate what are potential issues that this deal can have down the road and you learn uh, that it is better to address those early and maybe even before you get into contract. But you're in, in contract, you have a due diligence period, use it wisely. You know, you want to make sure that obviously the quality of the property is going to be an important component of this um, of this process. You also want to, if you're, if you're buying a significant amount of land, you uh, want to look at any environmental concerns that you might have with that land, uh, especially if your plan is to develop it in the future or to redevelop that site uh, for, for commerce. And so I think that those things are incredibly important. 
And then there are things that people don't necessarily uh, appreciate, which is things that kind of creep up at the end of transactions, like a survey that has encroachments and, and, and things of the like. But before getting into that, um, because I do have a couple of stories, tell me a little bit about your approach in, in, in due diligence. So for the property, obviously, just depending on what the property uses, all the things that are in the contract that you think of, right? First off is the survey. Then you want to get all the rent, you know, all the the leases. If there are any leases, you want to get service contracts, et cetera. And what I find super interesting is, especially for the investors that buy value add, a lot of times, and I, I just did this deal last year, there were no formal leases. And when I asked for the financials, I literally got copies like mm -hmm. on my phone where the landlord took pictures of the rent checks right. and sent them to me. And those were the financials. Um, so those deals take a much deeper dive and, and, and require a lot more due diligence because the information just isn't there. So if you're sellers who operate that way, let me just tell you right now, before you list your property, do yourself a favor and have the basics together. Have and even if it's an informal rent roll or it's a tax return or it's some kind of lease, even if they're on month to month, something that shows a potential buyer yeah. what the what they're actually buying beyond the scope of the building. Again, if you're a seller in, in Florida, we have 40 year certifications, now 30 year certifications and 10 year certifications after the original one. So make sure they're those. And then to your point about the environmental, I, I think the environmental applies even if it's not land. So in the, in the book that I was talking about, about the scared little fox and being afraid of the dark, it actually says about, you know, taking a look back, it says, if you go into the dark, always remember to look behind because lurking in the shadows, who knows what you might find. And I think about places that used to be, you know, even in retail, right? In a retail mm -hmm. shopping center, it might currently be a food, you know, restaurant or takeaway or a CVS or something, but maybe before it was a dry cleaner. Right. And those, you know, d different uses in the past before chemicals were banned or changed or laws were changed, things were discarded that even if it was 50, 60 years ago, they don't break down, they don't go away. And that can still be an issue yeah. for a new, a new owner. And it's not so readily available, right? So sometimes in due diligence to, to, to that example, you have to say, okay, great. I see what's there now, but what was in this shopping center for the last 10 years? See if there's a way to go back and get a record of, was there ever a dry cleaner there? Yeah. Was that warehouse ever a paint booth or mechanic repair shop? Because those, you know, mm -hmm. those issues are accepted by the new owner and the risk becomes the new owner's responsibility for cleanup and everything else. So for me, for me, the environmental is, is a biggie kind of regardless mm -hmm. of asset class and at least doing a historical search. I had a, a colleague of mine that was working on a piece of land that was residential in its current state, but this property was behind a small strip center. Immediately 
behind that one of the stores that was immediately uh, you know abutting the the piece of land that they were acquiring was a dry cleaner so then that immediately triggered a phase two environmental and then they found that there was contamination from the dry cleaner through the uh, go, basically going underneath this asphalt right a parking into his property mm-hmm. uh, or potentially his his purchase the property he was going to purchase and so of course you know at that point it's the question of okay what is the procedure for remediation what is the cost and then go back to the renegotiation table that he really wanted the property i'll tell you that is the last thing he thought that that, that the environmental was going to be an issue I, he thought i'll do a phase one nothing has ever been, been built on this piece of land it's only fifteen thousand square feet you know i want it for myself it shouldn't be an issue he never thought that the shopping center behind would be a cause of concern right. and then this is a surprise but it's better to find that early right and then you can plan for it and you go back and, and retrade it and when it comes to environmental what a lot of people don't understand is that in a lot of ways everything is buyer beware right but when it comes to environmental it's buyer and seller beware right it, it's it behooves the entire all the parties to be aware of what of what is happening there so that's an important thing that 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 a lot of people don't understand you know you could have clawbacks and come back when you have environmental issues mm-hmm. on, on a property so it's important for you to know what you own and uh, you know what condition it's in well and to your point so in that example that you know we still have a lot of residents residential and commercial properties in Miami that are on septic and Mm. well water. So in that example with dry cleaning, you know, the groundwater can be contaminated. And what does that mean if you're buying that property and the water that you're going to be using in your factory or whatever has this chemical in it, which, you know, heated becomes airborne, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah. In, environmentals, environmentals, a big one. Were, were there things that snuck up on you when you first started doing transactions that, that now you look for in advance? I'm trying to think since most of the stuff when I first started selling was owner user. I don't think so much because since right. I'm paranoid and afraid of all the unknowns, I yeah. was, a, a, you know, I would dig deep, but I knew what the exactly. use was. Getting into investment properties, I still think there's stuff that's come up that I haven't seen yet. Right. Um, one of the things that we've harped on a couple of times is really doing a deep dive during your due diligence in terms of if there are tenants in the building, are they all allowed uses? Because going uh, back to our point of the retail, if you have a strip mall mm-hmm. that has um, a bunch of different uses within that strip mall, but they might not have a CU or that use might not actually be approved based on zoning. As soon as you buy that and it triggers something Mm -hmm. in the county or the city, all of a sudden you could be losing tenants. So that was one thing. And then the other thing that we keep going back to is parking. Make sure that in your goal, so if your goal is to buy an empty office building, since that's all anyone's talking about these days, and converting it to medical office, because there's a lot of medical in your in your area and you see that the hospitals are expanding and everything else is the parking, you know, even though you might think that the numbers are going to meet your goals because you're looking at, you know, okay, well, right now the building's empty, but I can get this much for medical office in my area. You might look at the parking and because the 
office is vacant, it looks like there's a ton of parking, right? There's not a lot of cars. I can always park easily. But if you go to medical, especially to some uses that are very, very high demand in medical for parking, you can take a building that looks great on paper and all of a sudden parking becomes a huge issue and you're not going to be able to get the rents or you're not going to be able to get the tenants or it's going to take you a lot longer or you're going to have to come up with creative parking methods so i think those are the two the two big things that you don't really get into as an owner user you don't need to dig as deep um, because you're using the building you know how many employees you have you know what your parking's going to be um, you don't need to look at who's leasing the building and whether or not the use is approved so other than if it's going to be approved for your use but yeah with investors i think the due diligence becomes a little bit more well it, it does become a lot more intense because you're it's all about the numbers, right? right? Whereas as an owner user, it's the numbers, yes, but it's more about how you're going to use the space and what it's going to do for your business. Well, you re- you reminded me of something which I think is important that just because um, a property looks to be one thing, it doesn't mean that that is its current legal use, right? And so I remember selling a warehouse right by the Miami River. It looks like a warehouse. It was built as a warehouse. It was being utilized as a warehouse. It has never been anything other than a warehouse. The reason why I was hired is because the sellers found out that they were trying to lease it and the tenant couldn't get a certificate of use for the property as its intended purpose. The building is a warehouse. It was built to be a warehouse. However, here's what happened. City of Miami changed the zoning code. They go from the 1100 or the 1100 all code to Miami 21. This zoning was upzoned. It became T5, which is a mixed use, right? You could have retail, you could have, uh, and, and you could do multifamily. You could build on that. I think that she would have been able to build a really nice mixed use building. There was a tenant in place there. The tenant had a certificate of use. As long as that certificate of use is active, right? The old use of the certificate of use to 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 occupy it as a warehouse they would have been able to keep going for years and years and years as long as you don't let it lapse for more than a year tenant was not renewing the certificate of use landlord was not checking to make sure that the tenant was renewing the certificate of use certificate of use lapses for two years so now you can no longer use it for that purpose because now you are no longer grandfathered in. So even though it looks like a warehouse, right? Right. And it functions as a warehouse, you cannot legally use it as a warehouse. Which means you can't sell it as a warehouse or buy it as a warehouse. Correct. (laughs) Yeah. So now that brings an entire set of choices. One of them is to ask for a warrant from the city to change it back and basically ask for an exemption and you know all of those things take time energy effort and all other stuff the other thing is to say okay i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna buy use it for what i'm able to use it for and then develop it in the future you know i think there was a combination of those two factors that was brought in and basically a re- it became retail right because that was a legal use and then they just right right but that took 
it took the buyer a year, a little more than a year to really stabilize the property, okay. you know, which is, which is crazy. But that is a component that is very important. People say, well, are there open permits? Are they, you know, do we have any liens on the property? Okay, no open permits, no liens, I'm good to go. But they don't check the, the certificate of use, they don't check the zoning, they don't check to make sure that- Well, they did check the zoning, it's just that the new zoning wasn't the same as the old zoning. So the, that goes back to that's something else that you have to look at the historical record right. for that property yeah. so that you yeah. can determine because to your point just because it looks like feels like sounds right. like quacks like right. a warehouse doesn't yeah. mean it is a warehouse anymore well, some so people don't look at the zoning right they're thinking as long as they it doesn't have open permits and as long as it doesn't have liens then i'm and i'm getting clear clean title then i'm good to go and they don't right. check that the zoning either has changed or evolved or maybe it wasn't being used the right way right right there's some other things that you need to look at that are similar where you have to look backwards to see if additional paperwork is needed. One was the story that you told about the environmental with the land yeah. going underneath it. And it was like, oh, well, that road's always going to be there. Another one can be grease traps, right? So right. you can have a grease trap that is grandfathered in as long as all of the correct paperwork is continuously filled out. But right. if somebody leaves that restaurant space or that right. commissary kitchen or that bar or coffee right. shop and grease traps are no longer allowed there. And to your point, the, the paperwork trail dies, yeah. then all of a sudden it's not grandfathered in anymore. So even though you're either leasing or buying a space with a grease trap, and they're right, it does have a grease trap, but right. guess what? You can't use that anymore. Then all of a sudden you're already in a lease or under sure. contract and you can't use that. So that's another thing to look out for. And I'm gonna double check, but it is my understanding that, that Miami-Dade County is creating a disclosure when you're selling a restaurant that you're providing a, a disclosure that is being created that or already has been created by I mean, Miami-Dade County from seller to buyer to basically say this is what it is because I guess they were kept getting well they told me that I could do this they told me that I could do that and, right right you know, and I th and the same is true with the septic tank so I know that we have mm -hmm. disclosures for for residential here but I think if you're a commercial property owner just because you might be buying old residential land that might have an old septic on it, right. you would want to know that, right? Yeah. You would want to know that there's a septic tank there before you start yeah. digging that might need to be pulled out and Correct. redone or can you hook up to yeah. sewer? Can I, can I tell you a quick story about, about a survey? Because you were talking about planning and about where experience comes into play sometimes. And is I have a client, you know, we're selling his property. He inherited the property from his father. He knew the property very well. Uh, he certainly knew the property very well. But we are doing a showing and in the middle of a showing my client decides to make a comment that he hadn't made to me which is that no i think that this there's an encroachment here about 15 feet on the property right but i don't know because i don't have a survey but i remember my dad telling this story about him and the neighbor about the encroachment and all of that stuff i kept that in my mind right now we get a, an offer of the property we get a full price offer on the property i know what i know that most of the time buyers are going to do their survey right at the end right which i think it's it's not a good idea i think you should do the survey right away but in this case you know they weren't planning on doing the survey early so I know that when that comes up, it's usually ninth hour, right? Two days before closing, right. hey, we have a problem with the survey, right. and now we have to retrade, or we have to have this conversation, or this has to be fixed, or whatever it is. I tell my client and his attorney, you need to put language in this contract 
that says that you are not sure if there is an encroachment, but if there is an encroachment that they're gonna take the property the way it is. They're gonna have their due diligence period, they could do their own survey, and they could find out if it's something they could live with, but you wanna have this clarity. My client was fighting with me because he thought that by putting that, that we were gonna, we were gonna mess, mess up the deal. I said, listen, if it messes up the deal, better to mess up the deal now. Right, in the front of the deal right. instead of when at the I end of the deal. all the people that are interested right. and you have competition, then for you to do it when it's the ninth hour and you're gonna feel, you're already counting your money, so you're gonna feel compelled. Or you've already spent right, it. Right, or if you've already spent it. And even the attorney was like, why do you find this necessary? I said, because I, you know, I've been around, he doesn't know, they've owned the property for 30 years, he's not aware, there's no survey, so either do a survey or put this in the language, you know, mm -hmm. you know so. Of course, it did come back and there was an encroachment. And the buyers, because you told them early. Right, because they knew up front that they right. potentially could. And that's what happens at a lot of times when we have conversations with sellers. Sometimes sellers are apprehensive to share something. In my experience, the way I look at this is, and this is so appropriate because we're talking about fear. Mm -hmm. Fear, there's only two things. It's fight or flight, right? And right. You, you either face it, right? Or you're going right. to run away from it for the rest of your life. Right. And I think that what happens is most buyers are willing to accept a lot of things as long as you inform them early before they make the decision. But once you, they have all the information and they move forward, they're comfortable with that decision because they don't feel like they're surprises. Right, the seed's hidden. already been planted it's that already, it's a good. Like, this, a good. this is what I miss. And also they feel so much more comfortable because they feel like you've shared everything you know, so I feel more comfortable about the purchase because you told me the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it is what it is. And then there's, you only need one buyer. Right. That one buyer is going to take it the way it is, and it just makes all the sense in the world. You know that Spanish saying, en guerra avisada no muere gente, you know, which basically <laughs> means right. in, in an advertised war, people don't die because they, right. you know, yeah. so it's kind of the same thing. Right. Because so they know what's going to happen, what's right. going on. Right. Exactly. And they wouldn't have lost anything if they get the survey back and there's no encroachment. It was just Absolutely. a story that he had heard. He thought Absolutely. he'd repeat it. There's no potential lawsuit. Like by you doing that That's without right. the seller realizing it, you took a lot of the fear out of That's that right. seller because right. if you hadn't put that in there, my guess is once it went hard and you had already said, you know, we should do this because if he had chosen not to, he'd be yeah. going, oh my God, what's going to happen? Correct. What if the, you know, he wasn't going to sleep until it closes or until the survey's done and then it blows yeah. up and now he's worried for it for the whole length of That's the it. time that the property's under contract. Yeah. And he gets bad faith on the buyer That's side because right. they feel like he hid something because he could be like, Correct. well, you know, I, you know, my dad said there was one. I heard a story, but I don't remember. You know, then all of a sudden yeah. there's bad faith and he was trying to pull a fast one. I have another tip for sellers. So this is also a Miami River property. Uh -huh. Seawall was down, right? And the deck was a mess. It was so concerning, I didn't want anybody to walk over it because, you know, they could hurt themselves. We're putting the property on the market. My client is, we're gonna sell it as is, it is what it is. So then I say, do a seawall inspection, pay for the inspection, and get a quote. 
do it in advance. I know it's going to cost you a little bit of money, but it's going to serve you well in the future because people are going to throw crazy numbers to tell you that they're giving you this low ball offer because they got to spend all this money and you really want to know what's going on. And the more we do, it was so much fun because, you know, these guys come in a boat, they get in the scuba <laughs> gear, they get under there, they start evaluating, they take underwater pictures. It was a cool experience. I don't deal with seawalls all the time, right, right. you know, so it's, it's great. But can I tell you how important that was some some sellers believe well let, let them find out and whatever they find out I'll, I'll address it you know i find especially with something like that you don't want to be behind the eight ball the more information you have again overcoming that fear the more information you have the better suited you are to overcome any obstacle that comes your way from the moment you get into contract to the moment that you close that transaction and and information is power right, right, right. and so overcoming that comes with you know an investment no doubt about it but uh but it served them so well because the numbers that everybody was throwing at us was three times the amount always that we knew and then we said look we have a report we have this the guys came in school gear here are the pictures right. if <laughs> you, you know, want to get your own inspection you and you want to get your own quote, right. fine but, but at you're, least you're, you had a starting point and your right. seller didn't freak out going oh my gosh That's this right. guy's trying to rob me blind and, you know, and the buyer wasn't freaking out saying like correct. oh no what if the whole sea you know the what ifs right. what if the whole seawall collapses That's what if I get in there and they don't give me yeah. the, you know, so no. yeah, the point of being prepared. So it's not For just sure. being prepared as and a with, buyer, be prepared as report, a seller. Furthermore, with that report, the buyers that were getting crazy numbers were able to, where they were able to take that report, give it to the person that was giving the numbers and they got better numbers because now, now right. the person that was giving them the quote, right? The, the seawall contractor can see exactly can what see he needed report. to do. They don't have to guess they at what might guess. be under there given their experience right. and the nightmares that they've run into trying to repair right. seawalls and right. everything else. Exactly. I think we're ready. I think we're ready I for the it. fun fact. Sometimes we go long, sometimes <laughs> we go short. I love it. Well, look, I think the I think the the lesson here, you know, and I'm sure the lesson of the book as well is you don't have to be afraid. You just have to be prepared. Right. You have to be prepared and you have to look at what's scaring you. So it's always like, you know, it sounds scary in the dark, but when you finally go and find out what it is rustling in the bushes, it's a badger or you yeah. know, nothing scary. Right. So, yeah. I got you. As soon as everything comes to light through the preparation, then those fears can go away. So what's your stat? I see you like... Well, no, I, I just wanted to say, because I was curious about this, especially on the environmental side, I was wondering if I could actually find this data. But yeah, there is actual data on this. There are over 300,000 environmental site assessments that are completed in the United States every year. Wow. So that's, uh, I, I, I don't know. What did you think? The, were you thinking that number would be higher, lower? Like, think about it. Most residential transactions right. don't have an environmental yeah. side assessment. Yeah. So, and not every commercial transaction is going to have an ESA. I would be curious to see if the, if that, if that's so is that all together or is no. that just phase one or is that just phase, phase okay Those are only phase one okay right? so then that so not everything would trigger a phase right two right and, right right yeah. so if that's if that's a phase one it makes sense to me if that's a phase two i would be surprised by how high it is Correct. because again the phase one that's is right. doing the historical look back is there anything that's here right. that yeah. requires a deeper look oh i'm glad you looked at that's a great stat you, you didn't bad. you must have known you were going to bring up an environmental <laughs> issue is something to be potentially well, scared you know, of. I, I, I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny. 
Okay, so you're probably going to be wondering why I'm choosing the stat that I'm in because it's about cruising. And the reason for my cruise stat is because the peak season for cruising out of Miami is from December to April. So to avoid crowds and high prices, cruisebooking.com recommends that one of the best months to cruise from Miami is October. And we're in October, wow. so hurry up and book those cruises. <laughs> That's the best month to, to get a good deal? It's right. one of the top. It was, I think, I believe it was May, September, and October, but mm -hmm. I just focus on October because that's when the Jessica, let's started. go. Set it up for the whole family. <laughs> and then the, the, basically, this is because we toured Port Miami, which is going to be another episode, um, was Port Miami was on track to exceed 7 million cruise passengers before the pandemic. Um, in 2019, they had 6,824,000 passengers go through Port Miami. And I'm super curious as to what this year is going to look like because they had their busiest day ever in the history of Port Miami for cruise passengers. It was April 9th of this year, and they had 67,594 passengers wow. go through their port. Wow. Well, listen, that's a great stat, but I, I was in the room when you received that information, so yes. technically you can't claim that as your stat, but oh, I'm gonna, I will allow it. it I'm the one who pulled it up. You saw me hiding my, hiding the Port Miami thing. Um, but the cruise industry is super, super big. Um, wherever there's a, a port in Miami, it generated $7 billion and 40,000 jobs per year from things like ground and air, transportation, F&B, hotel stays, all the stuff that you need yeah. before and after, you know, before you get on the ship and afterwards. Absolutely. So. Well, guys, thank you for pulling up a chair and joining us in another episode of Between Two Chairs. Be sure to uh, follow us on uh, RSS Feed, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts such as, uh, as this one. <laughs> <laughs> and if you get any value out of it or know somebody who would, please feel free to share. I can't believe we did I that shameless that. plug. I know. I love it. Well, it's the first one, the first one in a, in a bunch, so why not? <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>